0: We have gathered for a phase of our worship to celebrate the only ritual authorized for celebration in the name of Jesus Christ. It is a celebration that the world knows nothing about because it's for those who are in Christ. This celebration is really a reminder. It is a reminder of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So when we celebrate, we are remembering his work on our behalf. This is why he says, do this in remembrance of me. So it is a time... To spend your time focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about His sacrifice, both living in heaven, coming to this planet, to die for your sins and my sins. Think about all that He endured. Think about His death. Think about His resurrection. In as much as it's a, mix, a mixture of emotions, as we think about what he underwent, there is that great joy now that he's not, on the, he's not in the grave. So we rejoice as we look forward to his second coming. So that's why this celebration is a mixture of two emotions. We look at it in sorrow for what he underwent at the same time we are jubilant that he is victorious over dead so because of the significance of this it is just not like something taking bread and juice and all that it's much more than that for this reason there is a dire warning about how one participates in this Celebration. So he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep so the Corinthians some of them came to this table as we have gathered and they thought it was a joking matter they were very careless about it they just jumped into it and some of them went home and died and others went home and got sick so it is a very uh, serious endeavor and so before a believer gets into it he or she should know that you are in the right spiritual condition. That is to say, at the moment you are celebrating this, there can be no sin in your life, none. The best way we ensure that is for us to confess and check our soul and see if there is some sin, to admit it before the Lord, so it declines while we celebrate. And during the celebration, you do everything to keep your thought in check so that it doesn't stray away into anything That will infect your soul with sin. So. I'm going to give us some time. For us to meditate on our souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this privilege that is ours that our Savior gave to us to celebrate and remember Him. We do re- realize that the mind cannot focus apart from the Spirit helping us, so we request that He will help us at this hour, so that we continue to think of our Savior as we celebrate this cup, this uh, bread and cup. This is our request in Christ's name. Well, like I said, you should have already opened the first part. Just pull it back and get out the wafer. In the night, just before the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread after offering thanks. He says, eat, this represents my body. Again, Father, we are thankful for continued celebration. We pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to enable us to focus as we celebrate the cup. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. Again, I give you a few minutes here to think through before we celebrate the cup. Again, if you haven't opened the top part, go ahead and peel it back. Again, the night that Allah was betrayed, before he was betrayed, he took the cup and after offering time says, "Drink from it, all of you." 6. Before the break and before the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we had introduced the next section of First Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, that we will be, will be studying for some time. Now we say that it, no doubt is concerned with unity in diversity. We say there are three subsections. The first subsection which is verses 12 and 13, concern unity and diversity in the body. The second, verses 14 and, uh, through 19, focus on body parts. The third, concern the treatment of body parts, in verses 20 through 26. So the theme of this section is really unity and diversity, and they are important components of the body in a literal sense. However, based on that, the overall message of this section is that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is the church of Christ. Now, we justified with three reasons why we gave this message. So, with that justification, we began to look at the first section, that is verses 12 and 13, that is, again, the focus is then the unity and diversity in the church of Christ. Now the overall message we indicated means, of course, that you do have responsibility that we point out during each section. And so the First part of the responsibility that we have, based on verses 12 and 13, is that you should recognize the unity and the diversity in the Church of Christ. There are two reasons given in the subsection for uh, us saying this, or laying out our responsibility. The first one is that the Holy Spirit states this truth, through the Apostle, in the first sentence of verse twelve, when it says, "The body is a unit, though it has or it is made up of many parts." And the second is the two, the, uh, two examples of unity and diversity provided in verse thirteen. So the Apostle refers to the body as having many parts. But that's an analogy, he's really using the analogy of the body, because he wants to compare the unity in the church but not uniformity. I emphasize that before break. There is unity but not uniformity in the church of Christ. So we began to show that the second clause of first Corinthians twelve verse two the second clause reads although and although all is uh, parts are many, they form one body. That that clause is intended to explain the first clause. The first clause, again, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. So, we say this may seem, uh, or may be seen from the fact that the apostle begins that, wo- uh, that section with the word, and that we say that is, but then not only that, but the, the fact that he used the, body, the word body twice in those two clauses, at the beginning and at the end. So those remind us that he is trying to compare or explain further what he said in the first part. Now to show that the apostle intended those to convey that he was concerned with the unity and the varsity, in the Church of Christ, he completes the comparison, which is what we begin with, this uh, second section. He completes the comparison. He, uh, he introduced in the fourth sentence of verse 12 that literally reads, just as the body is one. That's the way the Greek reads, literally. Just as the body is one. He did that by introducing a word that uh, he begins the last clause of verse of the verse that reads in the NIV this way: "So it is with Christ." So it is with Christ. Now the word "so" here is translated from a, a Greek word that is used primarily in two ways in the Greek. It could refer to that which follows in a discourse material, and so may be translated in this way, or as follows. Now, another usage is to refer to what precedes, in which case it may mean in this way, in this manner. So, it is in the second usage that the Apostle used the word in our passage to correlate with the Greek word we said is used in the first sentence of the verse with the meaning just as. So, just as to correlate with it so. So by this, by the way, though, there's no verb in the Greek, despite like the reading of the NIV that we have so it's, we say, "So it is with Christ." There's no verb in the Greek, because the Greek simply says, "So also be Christ." So also the Christ." Now so the issue is how then do we understand the literal phrase, "So also the Christ in our context." Now there are two factors that help us to interpret what the apostle meant. The first is the use of the word "d" that definite article "d" in the Greek. The apostle used the article not only to convey that Christ is in a class by himself when it comes to the matter of the body, but also that he is concerned with what belongs to Christ. Now the Implication will be that the Apostle wants us to focus our attention on the body that belongs to Christ. So that's what the, in the literal Greek. It's not given in the Arabic, in the literal Greek. Now the second factor is really the context itself. The Apostle has been describing the body and its parts. So that he conveyed clearly that the many parts of a body... From the body, the many parts from the body. Now, so based on this context, the apostle wanted to convey to us that there are several members of the body of Christ that together form his body. Thus the literal phrase, so also the Christ, or the clause of the NIV when he says, so it is with Christ, means that the body of Christ consists of many believers, but that these many believers together form the body of Christ. Now this interpretation is supported by what uh, the apostle wrote to the Romans regarding the many members of the body of Christ that constitute the church, as we read in the passage that I cited previously, and that is Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Romans Chapter 12, verse 5. Cited in the first half, but we need to look at it again. Again it reads, Romans chapter 12, verse 5 reads, So in Christ, we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. So we are saying that the clause, So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Actually, that clause interprets a literal phrase that we, uh, where it says so also uh, the Christ that the apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. That helps us to understand that. So in effect then, the apostle wants us to recognize that there are members that we all, believers, are members of the body of Christ. And that is the passage that we cited previously uh, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians I mean, uh, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12 that we're studying. Of course, the body of Christ refers to the church, as we learn from the instruction in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Here, by the analogy we see here, we, we see clearly that the body... Of Christ refers to the church. Here we have an instruction. As an explanation. As to why. uh, A wife should submit to the husband. And husband should love the wife. Here it is. It says for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. Now look at the next phrase. His body. To so the church, so he defines his body, of which he is the saviour. Hence, the apostle once also recognised that the church of Christ consists of all believers in him, and they are united in him, or that they form a unit in him. Not something human being did. He did that. Well, our responsibility is to leave it out. But it's already done. That we form a unit in Him. Hence the responsibility the Lord assigned to you and me that we are considering is that you should recognize the unity and diversity in the church Of Christ, you must make every effort to do that anyway. So, a first responsibility then is that is uh, for this responsibility we stated is because the scripture says there is diversity and unity in the body of Christ that is the church. So, that brings us to the second reason the Holy Spirit gave us through the apostle. That should enable us to recognize the unity and diversity in the church of Christ. That's the second reason. That should help us to recognize the unity and the diversity in the church. The second reason you should recognize the unity and the diversity in the church of Christ is the Holy Spirit provides examples of unity and diversity in the church. That's the second reason. The Holy Spirit provides us examples of unity and diversity in the church. So it is our assertion that it is your responsibility as a believer to recognise the unity and the diversity in the Church of Christ. Again, this is because the Holy Spirit provides us both the reason and explanation for the existence of diversity in the body of Christ. We said this because 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 begins with the word for. Look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 it begins with the word for, that is translated from a Greek conjunction that we encounter in verse 12 that has several uh, usages. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, it is used either as a marker of Clarification or explanation, implying that it is used for the explanation of how there is both unity and diversity in the body of Christ, or it is used as a marker of reason for the unity and the diversity of believers in the church of Christ. It's probably that the apostle wanted us to understand that the conjunction is used in both senses of providing explanation of how unity and diversity exist and the reason for such uh, existence. In any case, verse 13, in verse 13, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul gives us two examples of unity in the church of Christ and two uh, examples of diversity now we will consider first the examples of diversity since they are easier to deal with before we examine the examples of of the unity among believers, before we examine that now because the example he provided for unity, we have nothing to do really with it except to know that it exists. But the second one, yeah, we have everything to do with it. So the examples of diversity are presented in terms of ethnicity and social standing in a given society. Now, so this matter of ethnicity is given in the phrase where we're studying First Corinthians 12, verse 13. Look at that phrase. I mean, uh, that phrase says, Where the Jews... Or Greeks. Whether Jews or Greeks. Now the word Jews. Is one that. That word Jew. Is one that we have examined in detail. In the first chapter. Of this epistle. Almost four years ago. Almost four years ago. And I'm sure you've forgotten it. Or no, maybe some of you remember it in detail. But we'll see. So, for the benefit of some of us who have forgotten that, because we went through this in four, four years ago. And you see why, as we review this, you can see the relevance why the Holy Spirit brought it back at this time. Okay. So, we go back and look at what we are reviewed, or what we started with at that time. So, the issue it will be necessary at this point again like I said to review it in order to refresh our minds and so that we can recall uh, what it means since many people have problem of who is a Jew who is a Jew now the word Jew is translated from a Greek word that really is a Greek word uh, uh, that Strictly, the word means persons belonging to Judea. Persons belonging to Judea. That is a Judean. That's the, strictly the Greek word translate Jew. That's what it means. But it has been used in different ways depending on the period of history of Israel that's in view. Now, prior to exile, the term Jews was used to describe Judeans as we can gather from some passages. Now the term was used to describe Judeans in 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 6. 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 6. 2nd Kings chapter 16 verse 6 reads, It is, at that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the men of Judah, Edomites, they moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. To this day, of course, should refer to the time 1 Kings was written, I mean Second Kings was written. Now the phrase, men of Judah, is the way the translators of the NIV translated a Hebrew word, Yehudi, Yehudi. That means Judean or Jew. Now Prophet Jeremiah used the term In the same sense of Judeans, in Jeremiah, uh, chapter 32, verse 12. Hold on to Jeremiah, because uh, the next verse is also in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 12. He reads and they gave this deed to uh, Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahashia, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who have signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the god. Jeremiah also used that word to describe all Hebrews prior to the exile, as recorded in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 9 9 reads, everyone who was to free his Hebrew slaves both male and female no one was to hold uh, hold a fellow Jew in bondage now see this usage of, uh, of the term here refers to all Hebrews. He used it is to apply to Hebrews. But then the usage of the term though. Is, is used to describe. All Hebrews. That was. Applicable. In the time of exile. In the time of exile. For example. Mordecai. From the tribe of Benjamin. Was described as a Jew. In Esther. Chapter 2. Verse 5. Hold on to Esther. Esther. Hold on to it once again Esther chapter 2. Verse 5. Esther chapter 2. Verse 5 he reads now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin remembering that the word uh, uh, Jew could mean uh, a Judean so here a tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai son of Jair. The son of Shimea, the son of Kish. Now, of course, it would seem, though, that the term was widely used to describe the other tribes of, of the, I mean, the other ten tribes of Israel, who were scattered all over the vast kingdom of King Xerxes, since the attempt to exterminate the Jews was one that was widespread. Throughout the kingdom of Texas. Now, during the period of exile, the term was applied to some Gentiles, interestingly, to some Gentiles who allied themselves with the Jews, as we read in Esther chapter 8, verse 17. Esther chapter 8, verse 17. It reads, In every province and in every city, everywhere the uh, edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities, became Jews because fear of the Jews has seized them. Now the people of other nationalities became Jews in the general sense of one who identifies with beliefs, rites, and customs of Mosaic tradition. Consequently, After the exile, the term Jews then was applied not only to those who are from the southern kingdom of Israel, but to Gentiles who were adherents to the religion of the Judeans. Now in the New Testament time though, the term Jews was used to describe Judeans as those who adhered to Mosaic Mosaic tradition. Of course, it's not uh, a term that these Judeans used to describe themselves since they preferred the term Israel. They preferred the term Israel. Now, the Judeans did not generally use the term to address themselves, but the term Israel may be seen by comparing the descriptions of Jesus during his crucifixion, during his crucifixion. Now on the one hand, Jesus referred to him I mean as for the Jews themselves, they referred to Jesus as the king of Israel. That's why they referred to him in something that they derided him about in Mark chapter 15 verse 31 Mark 1 through 32. Now all this, what we're looking at is when through his crucifixion, where they uh, derided him. In Mark chapter 15, verses start 1 and 32. It is, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. And here's what they mocked him. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, you know that is a mockery. They didn't believe that. but They just said, let this Christ... The king of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Now personally, I believe this is one of the most difficult, one of the most difficult tests that Christ says. And the last one, really. Because you notice what he says, why why do I say that? Because he says, come down, we may believe. Well, you see, think about his God, he could just come down. And free himself, and they say, "Okay, let me go back, put it back." He can do that. He's God. He can do that. But had he done that, we will all be heading to hell. So to me, that was one of the last and the most uh, strong, I mean, the most uh, temptation that he faced, because he, you know, that's what he came to do. So they can believe in him. So here's a challenge. We do this, we believe. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Anyway, said so those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now that's so. That's what the Jews. That's what the uh, Israelites who mocked him. That's what they described King of Israel. Now remember that I said the. Uh, Judeans or what we call the Jews they don't really like to use the term Jews for themselves at that time rather they use the word Israel but now the Roman soldiers when they took call of Jesus Christ see how they also mocked him and how they described him it's Mark chapter 15 go up to verses 17 and 18 Verses seventeen and eighteen. He reads They put a purple robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. See this? They call him King of the Jews. Is the Jewish people or the uh, Judeans? They didn't call him King of the Jews. They say King of Israel, because that's how they dress themselves. Anyway, that others use the term to refer to Judeans as those who adhere to uh, Mosaic tradition. It's also evident in is used by the Samaritan women That spoke with Jesus as recorded in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 4, verse 9. John John chapter four verse nine. It is the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. Now that's a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were considered half Jews and half Gentiles. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So here the woman described Jesus as a Jew. So Jews use the term to describe themselves when it is intended to differentiate themselves from Gentiles. They may do that. Thus, Apostle Peter used that term when he preached the gospel in the house of Colossians as recorded in Acts, chapter 10, verse 28. Acts, chapter 10, verse 28. It is, he said to them, that's Peter speaking, you are well aware that it is against our law, for this law is in a book, not in the Bible. I may not recognize a part of our Bible. They say you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me, that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Now it is in the same sense that Apostle Paul used that word to rebuke Peter, the Apostle Peter, as we read in Galatians two, verse fourteen, for his conduct that was misleading. Galatians chapter two, verse fourteen. Galatians chapter two verse four then reads: When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, "You are a Jew, yet you live like a gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force gentiles to follow Jewish customs?" So Apostle Paul in this usage indicates that a Jew then is one who by birth is an Israelite and so practices Mosaic tradition. But that's not all. He also implied that a true Jew is not one who is merely a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As evident in circumcision, but one that is regenerated, as that is what we gather from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Romans chapter two verse twenty eight reads A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit nor by the written code. Such a, man, a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So in any case, the term Jew refers originally to those who are Judeans. But it extended to those who are Hebrew people. Of course, today, Hebrew people are found in every nation in the world, although some of them do not even know they are Hebrews. Some of them don't even know that. Because after several thousands of years, they've lost any touch, except that they still have some remnants, somehow, of things that remind them, but they don't know that, of their uh, Hebrew heritage. Now, however, though, uh, current research by a group... An organization in Israel that's been uh, they have dedicated themselves to locate the lost tribes of Israel ha, uh, they have through their work they have, uh, they have discovered a few of these uh, lost tribes. Now for example the tribe of God has been traced to the Igbos in Nigeria they trace them also to the Englands of Sweden among others. Now the tribe of Dan. Has been traced to Sudan. And you can see they resemble Sudan. Some Levites. In Lemba tribe of Ethiopia. Now other Hebrew people. Have been found in other parts of the world. Now this should not surprise anyone. Because of what prophet Isaiah wrote. In Isaiah. Chapter 11. Verse 11. Now. One of the things that uh, I will make a point to here. Is this. We have all this. Incomplete view of the Bible. Because. Just like almost everything. We deal with today. People like. Pick and choose. They pick the one they like and they leave the others. You don't have that love string when it comes to the Bible. If you're going to be true to the Bible, you must follow everything in it. You can't say, well, I don't really like this part. It's not an option if you are going to be true to the Bible. Or if you're going to call yourself a true biblical Christian. You must follow everything. Now, so this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 reads, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. Now I want to be, we're not starting Isaiah, but I want to make a point there. A second time, which means a first time has taken place. Which is it? The first time is returning them from the exile of Babylon. The second time hasn't happened yet. 1948 is not that. The people are confused. What you have in 1948 of the present Israel is not the second time. Because here is the thing. Let's read the passage. Look at what it says. A second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Now, let's be very clear. This remnant that's going to be rescued, that was going to be brought back, are believers in Christ. Majority of the present Israel are not believers. They don't believe in Christ. They're looking forward for the Messiah to come, but they, are not think, they, don't, they don't believe in Christ. So the point is you look at the Bible, people pick and choose, and they don't look at the Bible completely. Now listen to what he says. This is one reason I'm expi- explaining this is because some people think 1948 means Israel has come back and God Christ is about to come back. No, he doesn't mean that. Look at what he says. Again, he reached out his son a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. The remnant. Now see where they're coming from. And you compare it with 1948, and see if that's what it's, what it said. It said they come people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush. If you, for the NIV other versions, you use another thing, but actually, Cush refers to the ancient New media, that is, it corresponds to the present-day Sudan. 1948 did not involve only those from Europe. So it couldn't possibly be. But, you know, people don't want to, they don't want to look at the Bible. They, they go by their emotions. Because people don't want to look at the Bible. And it says, from Kush. From Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. The islands of the sea, mostly European sea uh, nations. Anyway, so you see here, it couldn't, well, my point I'm trying to make is the second time hasn't happened yet. So people who quit, Christians should quit anticipating that Christ is coming back because of it. He can come back any day. But not because of 1948. That's my point. Now, by the way, though, proper identification of the Jews or Hebrew people is important because of the promise, which is what most Christians in this country only know. And that is the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Here is a fact. It is, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now many Christians, in this country for example, Support present Israel because of this promise that uh, present Israel consists primarily, though, of a tiny fraction of the Hebrew people. Thus, for consistency, which is what my point, is for consistency, they ought to know who the rest are to avoid bringing curse on them. In other words, it is possible that Christians in this country have supported those who fought against the Hebrew people. And they didn't know that. Because of limited knowledge. And in that sense, they brought some kind of cause on the country. So when you, if you're going to do something, certain thing, when you're going to follow the Bible, find out the details. And just go and go, as you all say, half caught, and you're gone. Know the details. So that's why it's important to know who the Hebrew people are, as far as God is concerned. Now, but the other part of it is, oh, many Christians are, you know, they are, some are worried or do disgrace or whatever it is. They, don't, they forgot the other part of the whole thing. God said to Israel, I am going to scatter you, and wherever you go, I'm going to pursue you with the sword. That's a promise, that's what he said. So wherever you find Hebrew people today, wherever they are, they are persecuted. Because that's what God said. My son will go after you wherever you go. And so people need to understand that Christians need to come back to that. That's why, wherever people who are actually identify clearly as uh, Hebrew people or Jews, hmm, the world is against them. Because that's what God said will happen to them. If it didn't happen, then the word of God is false. God said that will happen. Until, that will continue until what we read in Isaiah 11, 11 happens. Brother, to that, all people who are of Hebrew descent, they are in for some rude awakening because their forefathers were scattered because of idolatry. And they have not recover from it today, completely because anyone today in Israel that doesn't believe in Christ is still in idolatry but you know that's not a popular thing to explain to Christians in this country but that's the truth you cannot be a remnant and be in the rejection of Christ the remnant that will come back would we'll all believe in Christ. Every one of them. And that's what's promised in Isaiah 11 verse 11. And it will be that as it may, the question of who is a Jew should be understood primarily really as Apostle Paul will have used the term in the episode that we're considering. You see, in modern time, the word is used in different ways because of the existence again of the modern a state of Israel. Now a person is accepted as a Jew by Orthodox Judaism if the person has been born to a Jewish murder and who has not apostatized. Look at what they say. If you're a Jew and you have apostatized. Now what does that mean? If you have become a Christian then you're in, apost- you're in apostasy according to uh, Orthodox Judaism. And you see what the problem is? We don't see that. Anyway. So then, it's not that, or that, or only that. others will also include though, a Jew as one who has a Jewish father or who has converted to Judaism. Of course, Jewish leaders prefer the term Israel has said to describe the Hebrew people. Now that aside, It is in the sense of a Hebrew person who practices the Mosaic tradition that the Apostle Paul used it in First Corinthians 12, verse 13 that we're studying. Now we say this because when the apostle identified himself as a Jew, he meant one who was born a Hebrew that practiced. The Mosaic tradition, he referred himself as a Jew in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Acts 22 verse 3 reads, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any one of you are today. Referring, speaking to the Jewish people. Here he associated being a Jew then to the law. But he also associated being a Jew as that which one is born. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 15. Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 verse 15. Galatians chapter 2 verse 15 reads, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now to him, the apostle, it is probably inconceivable that one will be a Jew without being a Hebrew. As we can gather from his description of himself as a Hebrew in Philippians 3 verse 5. Philippians 3, verse 5. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. It reads, Circumcised on the eighth day. (laughs) Invariably, from the research these people have done in Israel, every group that they have identified they circumcise their children, male children, on the eighth day. They don't know why. Every one of them that they have uncovered is circumcised on the eighth day. And they don't know why they did that. Anyway, here's the thing circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. So the point is that why the term Jew may be used to include those who are not born as Jews, but have converted to Judaism, that is not what the apostle would have had in mind. That's not what you would have been thinking about. He would have meant, uh, meant naturally born Hebrew people who are considered different from the Gentiles. As implied, Look, i now go back to where we started in 1 Corinthians to ever start. And look at that phrase again. He say, whether Jews or Greeks. Jews or Greeks. Now the word Greeks, yeah? It's translated from uh, a Greek word, Helen. Uh, not, the English, I think, people use one L, but this is a double L, H-E, double L-E, and Helen. That may refer to a person Of Greek language and culture, as that's the way the word is used in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. It is, I am obligated uh, both to Greeks and non Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Now in this context of Romans one fourteen, a Greek is considered as being civilized or cultured. In contrast to a non-Greek or literally a barbarian. That is one who is not civilized or someone who is uneducated. Now the Greek word translated Greek may mean, in a broader sense, all persons who, uh, who came under the influence of the Greeks as distinguished from Israel's culture so that the word may even mean Gentile it is in this sense that the word is used in Acts chapter 14 verse 1 Acts chapter 14 verse 1 Acts chapter 14, verse 1 reads, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as, far as, went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke effectively that a great uh, a number of Jews and Gentiles believed. See that phrase, Jews and Gentiles. Literally the Greek race, Jews and the Greeks. Jews and Greeks, but yes, translated Gentiles. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians twelve verse uh, 13, uh, the word refers to those who are non-Jews, non-Jews. Thus, the phrase Jews or Greeks refers to the uh, classification of humanity into two ethnicities where a person is either a Jew or a Gentile. Those are the two ethnicity the Bible recognizes and uh, later on in this study you will probably see why that should be the case so uh, the diversity in the church in the church of Christ is seen then in the sense that the church consists of Jews and Gentiles that's how it was seen however we should not think though of the church in terms of ethnicity but as consisting of one new humanity, as the Apostle Paul referenced in Ephesians chapter two, verse fifteen. Now, Christians are now a different kind of being, if you want to use that term, they are no longer whatever the ethnicity is. That's not the way they should be considered. When it comes to their faith in Christ, they are now looked upon as a different group of people. A third group of humanity, so to say, Ephesians 2 verse 15. We started this in detail, but I just read it. By abolishing in his flesh the law, uh, with its with commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man, the new man out of the two, the two Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace. So be that then as he may. The next example of diversity in the church of Christ, involved in the different social standings of those in the body of Christ. It is this, that is given in the phrase, where we're studying in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, where it says, slave or free. Slave or free. Now the word slave here is translated from a Greek word, that the Greek, English, and lexicons give the meaning of slave. And the word slave refers to In a legal status Where someone is owned By another as a property Now the church in Corinth Has such individuals Since the apostle in this epistle That we are considering inform such individuals Not to be troubled by their status Although, if they could gain their freedom, they should do so, as we already studied in First Corinthians chapter seven, verse twenty-one. 1 First Corinthians, 1 First Corinthians chapter seven, verse twenty-one. reads, We were you a slave when you were called. Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So the church in Corinth has slaves and mixed them with freed people. Now the word freedom in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 is translated from a Greek word that in our Verse refers to someone not under the servitude of another, nor under the ownership of another. So the church in Corinth has such individuals as well. Thus, the church of Christ consists of people with diverse social background. Consequently, you have the responsibility to recognize this truth So that you should be sensitive to fellow believers in not doing anything that implies you ignore the unity in the body of Christ. In other words, you recognize diversity, but you must do so in order not to endanger the concept of the unity in Christ. We're just introducing this area We'll begin, continue with it by God's grace next week. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here, or someone listening over the internet. If you die now, you go straight to hell. Why, you say? Because the Bible says, all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. You have sinned, you're a sinner, so why will you not go, not go to hell? God will be justified in sending you to hell. However, yeah, his love for you, if you are hearing what I'm saying, is because God loves you. He showed that love. It's not someone who says I love you and that's it. He showed it by sending his Son, Jesus Christ, who left all the glories of heaven, came to this planet, and took on human form because that was necessary for him to die on the cross for you and me. So he came, preached. Perform miracles, taught, declared that he is the Son of God. By what what he said, by his actions, they rejected him. So, in order to fulfill his purpose for coming to the world, which is to die for your sins and my sins, because he is described as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, for that he was arrested. Because when they came to arrest him, they asked him, Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. That's all he said. And they hit the ground. Because he identified himself as God. And after that, he gave them permission. They arrested him. He went to a mock trial. And eventually, he was convicted of no crime. But just so he would die. And to die, in a horrible way, the death of the cross, and they handed him over to the Roman soldiers who were skilled in art of torture and painful. They tortured Jesus Christ beyond measure. That, according to a secular historian, if you know Jesus Christ, when he came out of that pit, you couldn't recognize him. That's of course in conformity with what Prophet Isaiah said he was deformed beyond recognition. So. It must have been an awful suffering. Before he even went to the cross. He didn't complain. And they finally... laid him down on that cross. Uncle Carter... tied him up... and nailed him... as they drove those nails. Your sins... my sins... were the cause of that. So... Christ... didn't make a sound. They lifted that... sung it to the ground. He still didn't make a sound... until the last three hours... When my sins and your sins, and the sins of the whole world, were being judged on the Son of God, it was so unbearable that he let out that cry Eloi, Eloi. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are forsaken that you may have life. Are forsaken that you may receive God's righteousness. How? The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe that He died, rose again the third day, you will receive forgiveness of your sin. So that no matter how horrible your life has been, you've received full pardon and everything cleansed out, and you will spend eternity with Him. So trust Him and escape His coming judgment. If you, on the other hand, you say, I don't believe that, my friend, you are one way, your leg is almost at the foot of hell. A horrible place where nothing good from God comes. So escape that by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. Holy Father, we are thankful for the story of Your Word. We pray that God he will challenge us to recognize the unity and diversity in the body of Christ. And that give us the ability... To function in such a way, not to bring anything that will do otherwise or say otherwise. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.